Thank you for joining me here at the Real Rescue Podcast. I'm psyched about this episode because this one we get to have a conversation with two other podcasts. But first, let's drop a little shout out to our sponsor for this episode. Yep, that's Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Now, this episode, we get to sit down with John Gray from the Hangar Z podcast and Halsey Scheider from the Helicopter Podcast. We have a great conversation to talk about a little bit of CRM with a couple other things and outside of the world that each of us are in. It was a blast. So for the first time, I hope you guys enjoy it. It's our Helicast Mashup. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. What's up, fellas? Good to see you today. How are you? What's up, Quinny? Hey, Quinny. What's going on? This is awesome. This is a bit of a vertical helicast podcast mashup. Boom! (laughs) (laughs) Helicast Unite. Dude, Coming kind of, together. Do we? Can we get rings or something, John? Like, <laughs> our helicast together. <laughs> like, like Captain Planet style. Yeah, totally. Fire. <laughs> Boom. I can be water. I could literally be water. Swimmer. I always felt bad for like the. I always felt bad for the one guy that was like everyone was like fire, wind, and then there was the guy who's like heart. Yeah. Like, oh. oh, that's <laughs> funny. Oh, that's great. Well, man, I, man, I'm psyched about this, you guys. Um, we've we've had this talk for a while in the background, and it's finally finally come to fruition. Uh, we are going to have a conversation about crew resource management. So boring, and yet so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I specifically remember sitting out like through CRM classes, and you you're just like, oh god, here we go again. <laughs> but. Uh, you know what? It's important, and, and we have an opportunity to have a couple different perspectives from each of our position in the helicopter. So, I, I'm excited to see what we can bring to the table to to give everybody out there to to use and work with, and hopefully just a good information session. So, it's good. It's funny you talk about it being boring. I remember back in college, I was, I was a sociology major, and we we're what sociology does is take something that's very simple and makes it super complex and tries to make it scientific, almost to the point where it becomes boring. And I feel like that's what has happened in this, the study of CRM stuff. This, we take something that's really dynamic and can be really interesting, but we find a way to make it super boring. Like you sit through the CRM portions of your, your training, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, feel like poking your eyes out sometimes. But it's such a critical part of what we're doing. Most of us are flying, you know, we might be flying single pilot operations, but you still have people on board and it's still important to know how to communicate with these folks. So anyways, I just, I think it's funny how we, we tend to do that. We take something that's interesting and make it boring and over, overly scientific, you know? So hopefully this is a fun conversation and not overly scientific. Right. I think that's the beauty with the podcast is we can hopefully make things uh, more kind of real life. I, you know, I feel like when we're in a classroom setting, things get too scientific or people are trying too hard to create this amazing curriculum and they forget about actually just like sharing the stories from the perspective of the pilot, from the crew member. And so I think hopefully within this podcast, especially with you guys, you guys have a vast amount of 
crew resource management experience compared to to me. So I'm actually excited. I feel like I'm going to gain from just being able to kind of hear what you guys have to say. So I'm pretty excited about that. Absolutely. Good. You know, what? I, I forgot to start us off, though, or we forgot to start this off. By the way, I'm Jason Quinn with the Real Rescue Podcast. What up? John, <laughs> what do you represent? Um, I'm John Gray. I'm the host of the Hangar Z podcast. So we, uh, we represent the public safety segment. So police, fire, law enforcement, uh, HEMS, I guess police and law enforcement is the same thing. But uh, all the, the public safety segment is, is uh, what the, the Hangar Z represents. So yeah, happy to be here with you guys. And I'm Halsey Scheider with the Helicopter <laughs> Podcast. Not Snyder. Emphasis on Scheider. Uh, <laughs> and my podcast is, is is exactly as it sounds. It's, it's encompasses all helicopters, mainly the stories of the men and women that fly helicopters. So uh, super excited to be part of Vertical Helicast, obviously. And I think doing collaborations like this with you guys is only going to create amazing and better content for our listeners. So uh, I, I love being part of this group. I don't have as much energy as, as Jason, uh, admittedly. <laughs> I wish I did. Like you should sell a can of Jason energy. Like, I don't know, like you should have an energy drink or something. I, I need some of what you, you have. No, I'm, I'm working on a whiskey drink right now. I mean, come on. <laughs> nice. I gotta, I gotta tone it down, man. Tone it down. <laughs> Uh, Jose, I appreciate that one, man. I like it. If I can rub off on you a little bit, we'll, we'll have some fun together. Let's just, you know, it'll be all right. It'll be good. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Looking uh, forward to that's it. That's funny. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, guys. Let's let's ask the first question. So, what is CRM? So, John, what what do you what is CRM to you? And it's it, to me, it's super basic. It's just talking to people. You know, it it when we're in flight, you've got to communicate, and that communication can be verbal and nonverbal, right? And the benefit that I have in law enforcement. I've got a partner that's assigned to me every day. And because I'm working every day with that same partner, we pick up on our cues. You know, he knows what I need to do and I know what he, he needs to do. A lot of times just, just based off reading each other and hearing what's going on the radio and, you know, having gone through the, the, the motions a bunch of times, uh, a lot of times CRM is, like I said, nonverbal. So that's, that's as simple as it is, you know, to me. Yeah, uh, that's me too. Halsey, what about you? What, what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, CRM to me, CRM can be as basic as taking a passenger in an R22, your buddy, your girlfriend, your wife, your husband. And I always used to say like, hey, guys, four eyes is better than two eyes. So please keep an eye out. If you see anything, see another aircraft, you see a wire, you see something, please tell me because there's a good chance that maybe I don't see it. Uh, so I think it's as basic as that. And then I think it can become more complex where you have trained crew members. In my experience, I've flown an air medical. So I had a nurse and a paramedic that went through basic kind of helicopter indoctrination and understanding helicopters and understanding the important things to look at for like a recon and having them help me as the pilot when we're doing off airports, when we're uh, coming into a tight LZ. Uh, and, you know, I think later on I, I can share some stories about how those people in the backseat, I think, actually might have saved my bacon a couple of times. So I think it's as, Ooh, as nice. simple as everyone everyone has a responsibility in the aircraft to kind of be aware of what's going on, uh, whether you're trained or not trained. That's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's I, one of the things, sorry, John, I've been actually blessed throughout my entire career that I've always been part of an entire, <clears throat> sorry, I've always been part of an entire crew. So I've always had to incorporate CRM. It wasn't until 
I came into more of the civilian sector and, and pilots had started coming on to my world of search and rescue and hoist operations where they were like, Hey, you don't talk in the back. And I'm like, Oh, on, on the contrary, my friend, yeah. <laughs> I talk a lot and you want me to be talking in the back of the aircraft. So it, it was, it was kind of funny that I had to flip it. Um, cause again, you got guys, single pilot or, uh, or just two pilots up front that are not used to having the crew in the back. And again, I'll tell you what, I know you guys can land the helicopter. I, I know that. I know you don't need my help to land the helicopter. But Halsey, you said it. It's an ex extra set of eyes to say, hey, yeah, everything's clear. You're clear down, whatever. Especially in like a remote area or a non-landing zone or whatever. So. Well, you know, I know like the 407 has like a backup camera now, like the GX, but most helicopters have very poor visibility from the pilot perspective of behind, left, right. You know, you have very limited field of view, especially during night operations. So being able to have that person in the back kind of serve as that backup camera, I use it for my car. Might as well use it for the helicopter as well. Yeah. <laughs> the car. CRN doesn't. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to hear yeah, that. Qu yeah, it's like your it's like your pilot's like, hey, Quinny, we need you to stop talking, but can you give me a series of beeps that intensify <laughs> as I'm getting closer? You uh, might be honest up there. Go ahead, John. <laughs> CRM doesn't happen by accident, you know. And when you get a new partner, it's incumbent upon you as either the pilot or if you're not a, the pilot, if you're in Quinny's role or someone else, to initiate those conversations to where you do work effectively together because like, like Halsey, like you said, four eyes is better than two or six eyes is better than two. However many people are part of that crew, it's really important and not just visually, you know, it's, it's being aware of what's happening in the flight. You know, if you've got an emergency procedure, if you're a TFO or you're a crew member, you, you have every right, just like anybody else to grab that emergency, the procedure and, and go through that checklist as, as, as that thing happens. Uh, God forbid, you know, we, we experience that and we will at some point. Um, but it's so important, I think, to have, you know, more brains and more eyes working to make the, the effectiveness of each mission possible, you know. I'm Absolutely. curious too, Jason, from your perspective, since you've, you've been working more in the back of the aircraft and I've been more in the front of the aircraft, I've always tried as a pilot when I did my couple years at Air Medical when I actually had a crew, I always tried to really brief about my expectations of how we can work together, right? Uh, how I'm incorporating them within this helicopter and how we all have a responsibility to keep each other safe. But I'm guessing that you've probably experienced maybe both pilots, pilots that want to include you and pilots that yep. don't want to include you. And I would be curious to kind of hear an experience of when a pilot was maybe trying not to include you and how you were able to effectively communicate the importance of like, hey, dude, I'm here to help. I'm here to be part of this team. Because uh, I feel like that could be hard to navigate. And maybe hearing it from your perspective could help some of at least my listeners understand the importance of making sure that we're doing good briefs and making sure that our crew doesn't just feel included, but is actually absolutely included as vital role. Yeah, right on. I, I'm happy to answer that. So a couple of things. Let me start with the uh, always included. And that is every time I've been in a crew that I'm always included in everything, it's always a, a quick question to the back of the aircraft. And it could be, hey, we're going to fire on the engines, get ready for rotor start. You guys clear the back, ready to go? Yeah, we're good. Hey, thumbs up. Um, and on the other side of it is I get shut down. The only time that we or I in the back have ever been like, hey, lock it up is takeoff and landing. Because it's the 
It's that you guys have so much going on up in front of the aircraft. Get up once you get uh, vertical lift and you get to that translational translational lift. We're good to go. And now I can start talking away. Um, but in the beginning that, hey, we're good to go in the back. Cabin door is open. Cabin door is closed. We're all secure. We're ready for taxi. We're ready for takeoff. That conversation is, is on point. At the other side of it, as simple as a startup, I have been standing at the aircraft. My helmet is on the deck. I am standing outside the aircraft. I have, I'm like putting earplugs in and the engines are firing up. The rotor head starts turning. I'm looking around like, does anybody ask me if I'm ready? I mean, seriously? And then I put my helmet on like, oh, you guys are starting. Oh, oh yeah, you weren't ready? I am now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, I guess for me, it's that um, if you have, if you have pilots that engage you back and forth, you have that, John said it earlier, you have that conversation. It's easy. It's just like having a conversation like we are now, like you're sitting in the car, somebody's talking in the back seat. You're like, Hey, don't make me turn this car around. You know, that's, <laughs> it's, it's that fun banter back and forth. You're having a good time. Um, the other side of it where it's been uh, very difficult is when you're having chatter and then a, a pilot up front gets irritated or, or something comes over and just, he gets overwhelmed. He, she, they get overwhelmed and all of a sudden they shut us off in the back. And now, we're, now we've lost comms all again because they just don't want to hear us. They don't want to listen. They've got one radio call every 15 minutes and they shut us off for an hour. I'm like, come on, man. That's so now you got to go up. You got to tap on the shoulder. Hey dude, we got stuff we got to talk about back here. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So I forgot. No, you didn't. You just, you want to do your own thing. I get it. You've been single pilot or you've been flying from point A to point B for 20 freaking years. And now all of a sudden you've got somebody in the back that's telling you, Hey man, you're not cool. This is, you're not ready for takeoff and whatever. But yeah, so I, I've seen both. The worst I think I've ever seen was we, <laughs> the two pilots I was flying with, they got in a verbal argument, whatever it was. I, I didn't matter. It was, just, but it was a verbal argument. And they were like, bickering back and forth. <laughs> we did an hour and a half flight where they literally did takeoff checks, cruise altitude checks, and did not speak again until it was before landing checks. And I was like, at one point in the middle of the flight, I'm like, are, are we good up front? You know, both of them like, yep, yep. And that was it. <laughs> like, holy cow. <laughs> yeah. Mommy so, and daddy are fighting. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, been, oh. I've been assigned to a partner where it was, it was kind of like that. And you take off and you say what you have to do. And, and of course, if something vital pops off, you bring it up. But you want a culture that doesn't have that. And that goes back for in, in law enforcement to the selection process, of the people that you're bringing into your unit. You know, you don't want that environment to, to be created. So it's really important for us in the selection process to look for people that, you know, as simple as it sounds that you'd want to have a beer with, you know, because you're going to be in tight quarters, you're going to be working in stressful situations and you want to make sure that that doesn't happen, you know? And I think in law enforcement in particular, my culture has gotten a lot better. When I first started, there was kind of a dividing line in the cockpit and the TFO and the, the observer that you do the police job, you, you work the radios, you work the camera, you do that side. And the pilot does the other stuff. He, the magic stuff happens over here. Don't touch my stuff. Don't even ask about it, basically. It's kind of, <clears throat> kind of how I felt with one of my first partners. So, you know, fast forward to the end, you know, let me go back to the, that first partner. Uh, I didn't know what upwind was. I didn't know what downwind was, downwind was or crosswind or any of these, you know, basic terms. I, that should have been one of the first conversations we had so that I knew, you know, you talk about a sterile cockpit. So I'd know when we go to depart, you know, keep your mouth shut. 
so that the pilot can make his calls and make sure everything's good or her calls, whatever. Um, and then, you know, at the end, as, as when I was PIC and, and my TFOs, it, it was a two-way conversation the whole time outside of the sterile, you know, cockpit part of the flight. But it was really cool to see the evolution of that. And it wasn't just me. It was it's how the culture has evolved. Um, in law enforcement, it's interesting, too, because it's not just CRM as it relates to flight. We're also working calls together. So the pilot, of course, is making sure that it, the flight's safe. But when the pilot isn't task saturated, we're helping the TFO work their call. Now, it might be a simple radio manipulation. It might be finding a suspect because a lot of times the, the TFO is looking at the camera. Got a really narrow field of view. The pilot's looking out the window, so your field of view is really broad. And the pilot, a lot of times, ends up catching the bad guy because you've got this really broad field of view, and you're like, oh, what's this guy running over here? Who is that? And the TFO puts the camera over there, and, oh, that's, that's him. <laughs> got him. You know, so that, it's really cool. Um, so, again, going back to that, that, that person I was talking about, we're working a call. It's a man at the gun call. It's a pretty serious call, and there's a bunch of units coming in. And we're in a – now being a pilot, I understand it's kind of – you know, a little bit more of the role of the pilot in this particular area was not task saturated, was not in a position where he couldn't help, just didn't want to help. And I'm asking him for help to help direct units in because he can look out the window and say, hey, you've got a unit coming up next street to the to the west. I'm come one street east. I'm asking him for help. And he's like, sorry, I'm busy over here. And it wasn't he wasn't busy. He just didn't want to help, you know. So, you know, it goes back to one, the selection process, but two, how the culture's changed over time. So have you seen Quinny in, in your segment? a shift in culture or has it always been pretty good? Uh, from where I'm at, I, I'm like, I've worked in search and rescue my whole career. It's, it's always been pretty good, but it's had to be because when you get on scene, you, you're relying on the guys in the back of the helicopter to get the gear ready for hoist operations, long line, fast rope, everything that has to do with the back of the aircraft. We have to have communication with the guys up front. It's, it's, you can't not. I mean, I can't be throwing the cabin door open at 120 knots. It just doesn't happen. So all the limitations of all the aircrafts, we've got to have that that communication back and forth. So you have that, I'm gonna call it the dance or your script, you where you you're checking off your script. And it's it's wonderful. So again, I've always had it. Um, it's always worked wonderfully for me. And occasionally you have a guy that's just like, oh, and you're like, ah. Oh. But you make a joke in the back of the aircraft, everybody's laughing, everything's back to normal. So Yeah. Halsey, how about for you on the, no. the him side and then as you move forward into the role you're in now? Well, the role I am now <clears throat> is I write a lot of emails and I talk on the phone <laughs> a lot. Uh, so it doesn't involve <clears throat> excuse me. It doesn't involve too much CRM. Well not influence uh, CRM. Well, I, I work with I work with my wife. She works for us, so we have to be strong communicators. Uh but uh, in, in, in air medical, I can't speak to say 20 plus years ago, but what I've heard, uh, obviously I think air medical has gone through a lot of very positive changes. It went from kind of a dangerous job where a lot of people were dying, <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, through time it's become better and better. And I think one of the big things that I always heard from some of the old timers is that they used to consider the crew, the, the nurse and the paramedic as self-loading baggage essentially these people that get on the helicopter they don't know anything about helicopters maybe they're arrogant maybe they're annoying they talk too much they don't do enough whatever it may be but there was never like this mutual respect of actually incorporating them into the safety of the aircraft whether you're starting up the aircraft and you're clearing the area 
whether you're about to take off and you're clearing the area coming into an LZ at night and you're having them help because they have goggles, whatever it may be, it just wasn't incorporated. So a big shift in air medical has been incorporating the crew into that. And, and it starts at startup, uh, it starts at right before we take off, there was a challenge response checklist where the med crew would actually challenge me with a series of questions, just making sure that everything up front was, was how it should be. I have admittedly pulled up the collective on a helicopter before when it was in ground idle, right? Uh, so having a med crew say, is the throttle, is the throttle full? It's a good question to ask, right? Uh, especially in an aircraft where, you know, like a, a 407, maybe not the GXI, but like a 407 or a long ranger, you can maybe not be all the way full throttle and not maybe necessarily know it if you didn't check your tack or whatnot. So having that challenge response checklist, I think is important. And for me, I always, I, I felt like, I guess maybe it's the person that I am, but I feel like if you talk people up a little bit and you make them feel included, we're all humans. We all have an ego. We all need to fulfill something. I always felt from a pilot perspective, if I include these people, whether they really know what they're doing or not, I feel like I'm going to get the best out of them every single time. And so we would get new med crew and I would kind of hype them up a little bit and, and make sure that they realized their part of safety within our flying environment, how we all had a responsibility for each other to get home safely, not just the guy up front flying the aircraft. And I think <clears throat> for guys and gals out there that are flying air medical, maybe you're just getting into air medical. One thing that I would really encourage you is to communicate with your crew, do really thorough briefs. I know it can become mundane. You Sometimes you fly the same route all the time, but when you start, when you, when you start kind of declining in giving a good, you know, post-flight brief, it just makes it easier to do a, a crappier brief the next time. So I always tried to maintain like the high standard. And I know it sounds like a little corny. I'm like that pilot that's taking it too seriously, but it's serious to me. Right? So I would always recommend that. And then I would recommend practice. I would make sure that the med crew, they get like one week at, at the company that I work for. They get kind of one week of helicopter style training, being in a helicopter, NVG. So I would go out and do continual training. I worked for a company and most air medical companies are this way now. Go out and train. Do, you know, what happens when we're in an inverted IMC? I can use the guys in the back to help me go through my checklists. What happens if we're in this scenario? So practice, 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 and and make sure that if if you see that there's maybe a wink, uh, ugh, a weak link within your crew, that you're helping them. You're not scolding them. You're not demoralizing them, but you're helping them get better. Because at the end of the day, they truly are not flight people. They're they're nurses. They're paramedics. They're really good at what they do. And so I think it's a pilot's responsibility to make sure that we're incorporating them and and that we're also keeping them fresh. And and helping, you know, with their evolution of becoming a, a better crew member within the helicopter. Yeah. Well, and hopefully with the flying in general, your crew members, if they fly enough, they'll start picking up on a lot of your cues. And right now I currently am flying in the 139, right? So the guys will come up and say, Okay, I'm just gonna pull up power. I'm gonna I'm gonna get in that one, two foot hover off the ground, check my engines, we've got it, we're gonna do a clear area takeoff. Power, 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 set, rotate, that nose down, wings level, TD or TDP, wings level, rotate. Okay, we've got VTOS and we're taking off. I think that's all. I think that was accurate. And I'm not even a pilot. 
But it's it's one of those things that when you hear it enough as a crewman, you know what to expect in the front. So when things are off, then you can say, oh, oh, okay. Okay, that that's not right. So uh, you know what? I got a story for that one. Because we're out, we're doing basic training, uh, just hoist training on the runway. And we were, I think it was for a new pilot, but anyway, we had a gearbox over temp. So again, we're in, in the back and I'm doing the hoisting and I hear, hey, we've got a gearbox over temp. The, uh, co- the co-pilot or SI, uh, the instructor pilot, he said, okay, well, let's finish the hoist and then we'll land and let the gearbox cool off. Again, we're sitting over a runway, totally 100% safe. But we finished the hoist brought uh, the crewman into the cabin, stowed the hook, nice, gentle, landing down to the ground, and just sat at idle until it went out. That was it. But everything was, I, I roger that. Yeah, we got it over temp. I'm going to finish the hoist, and we're going to land. Copy. It was that quick, and everybody had a little piece of it, and then, boom, non-incident. And that's the greatest part about, like, CRM that works. It's when it's a non-incident. Hey, it worked the way it's supposed to. Boom. <laughs> so... Yeah, I think when when CRM's working if efficiently, you're going to be an effective flight crew, regardless of what the mission is that you do. You bring up in-flight emergencies, you know, double, going double IMC, or God forbid, a, a incapacitated pilot scenario. You talk about you know flying with these yeah. crew members who, who aren't aren't pilots and don't even really know what the instruments are. I would always take the time to explain this is these are the, some of the critical instruments, and this is like if we go double IMC, this is what you could look at to help if help keep wings level, you know, outside of just pressing the auto autopilot button. But, you know, God forbid a incapacitated pilot scenario happens and this crew member has no idea what they're even looking at. So, you know, one, this goes to CRM, but two, just general training throughout these flights. You know, like you talked about Halsey is familiarizing your, your crew with these different procedures and, and what you could possibly do, you know? So I, I think that's really important. And I think, I think pilots, we have a responsibility to always make sure that we are advocating for the safe environment. Uh, I had a guy on the podcast a long time ago named Eric Thresher, and he came up with this Thresher. I think he called the Thresher effect. So shout out to Eric. Um, And his, his whole theory was that when the helicopter is spinning and on, people start doing weird things, even if they're familiar with being around helicopters. So his whole theory is like, hey, look, you can have a med crew that's been, you know, on the job for 10 years. And now once the helicopter starts running, it's noisy, it's loud, it's vibrating. People just start kind of doing weird things. You you hear about those stories of people that knew not to walk into tail rotors, walk into tail rotors. So yeah. I think it's always, uh, you know, it comes t- about briefing before the helicopter is noisy and vibrating and, and on. So I think, you know, pre-flight briefs are super important. And then I think when I had crew man, my head was always on a swivel on the ground, especially, right? I have crew members loading patients. Sometimes we're on a highway. There's law enforcement. There's so much going around. So I'm always kind of keeping vigil. But on that same token, when I'm on the ground and I'm running, say on a highway or something like that, where I need to keep running, I kind of always felt very uncomfortable. And so for me, it was an emphasis point to my crew of like, hey, you guys are responsible when we're on the ground, please don't let anyone walk into my tail rotor, right? Please keep an eye out. I know we're there to serve this patient, but I don't want to have, I don't want to create another patient because the DPS, you know, guy just walked into the tail rotor, you know, because people do weird things around spinning helicopters. 
And so I don't think that crew, crew resource management, at least in air medical, is just in the aircraft. I think it's anytime that that helicopter is running and you're in an environment where safety could be compromised, I think it's super important to make sure that you have a good understanding of what your role is. As a pilot, my role is to sit there, have my head on a swivel, make sure that you know I'm, I'm not seeing anything that could you know cause an issue. And, and the med crew who's outside, their, their role is to make sure that no one's entering my rotor disc uh, until I get a thumbs up, making sure that no one is behind the helicopter and kind of keeping that general scene safety. So again, it comes into knowing your role. And if you don't do a proper brief, you may not, or your med crew may not know uh, their role. Yeah, I, I like the, the thought of the, the ground operations. Uh, at our unit, our, our mechanics were upstairs in the hangar. We had a two-story hangar. The bottom floor was where the office space was. And if, if you're on the ground and a pursuit kicks off, we're sprinting up the stairs, running across the hangar floor to the aircraft that's parked outside. And the mechanics were running by the mechanics. And they see us. And they know just, you know, through experience and our relationships that we've built, what we're doing. So they'll sprint out with us, get us started, help that whole process to make the, the you know, the mission more effective. So it does, CRM, like you said, doesn't only exist in flight, it's on the ground too. And again, I think it lends, you've got to develop a culture where that happens. You know, it, that can, that can only happen if, if it's intentional. I think if it's, if you're not practicing it, like you brought up earlier, uh, it's just not going to happen on its own. So my two cents. Well, it's funny you say it, it's by practice because, all right, let, let's throw everybody that's uh, in the in general public that doesn't fly helicopters, doesn't get into airplanes. Let's let's be in your car. So the majority of people have been in a car. They can drive. They can be a passenger. Whatever. Imagine being in the car at the at a driver's seat. Okay, and you're just dictating everything you're going to do. Okay, I'm going to put my left blinker on looking over my shoulder, going to turn left now, stand by and left and straighten back out. And um, I'm forward, I'm driving forward, staying in this lane for until I tell you. People look at you like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> but that is exactly what we're telling everybody to do in the helicopter. So if you're moving in the backseat of a car, yeah. you say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to disconnect my seatbelt. I'm going to turn around and get something out of the out of the back. Yeah, it's it's that it's that communication that you don't think you should do, but you need to do. That's it. It's, it's talking about all your movements. That's it. I don't know about you guys, but I actually like in my car, I always find myself like with, with my wife or something in the passenger seat, like clear left, clear right. Like <laughs> I do, I do I'm like announcing it. <laughs> but it seems like that's like makes sense to me. Like, right. they're like, hey, are you clear over there? It looks like it's clear. You know, it's like I, I feel like I'm announcing clearing turns in my car. It's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's a positive transfer uh, from, from flying helicopters, <laughs> bringing it to the old Kia Telluride. Yeah. But, you know, oh, one thing weird. else you brought up, the you know, how everybody acts differently when the helicopter's on, which lends to the fact you've got to be very intentional with everything you do. And because of that fact, you've got to be very intentional. I think that's why we say what we're doing out loud. So it fights complacency, right? So, like, you know, you're, you're clearing turns, you're, you're doing all the things so that other people can know what you're doing and help, you know, with that part of the mission. So, you know, again, just kind of going back to the fact that we're just talking, you know, communicating that is super important. So. We're going to divert real quick to thank our sponsors. Breeze Eastern. For over 80 years, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured battle-proven aerial rescue hoists, winches, and cargo hooks. Each product is carefully crafted to support demanding mission scenarios. 
ensuring the job gets done safely and efficiently. Visit them today at www.breeze-eastern.com. I'll, I'll throw one more thing out there too, especially as a guy in the back. One of the nice things that they have nowadays is wireless ICS. Uh, there's a couple of agencies out there that, that have the system um, or, that, or a couple of companies that make a system that use it, uh, Axness being one of them, TrueLink being another. But to be on the ground and to be a part of the conversation in the air is, I, I it's a game changer for anybody that's not ever tried it or used it because you can literally be a part of a conversation and you don't have to say a thing. A lot of times I'll be in the air and I'll be talking to the guy on the ground. I'll say, hey man, did you get all that? A simple thumbs up and I'm like, yeah, he's good. Or reverse it, I'm on the ground. They've got stuff going on in the air. The winds have changed, The um, there's an emergency, whatever. And it's, hey, this is what's going on. Quinn, are you good? A little thumbs up. And okay, he's, he's copied that and boom, they leave. Hey, we need fuel, we're taking off, we'll be right back, whatever. So having, having ICS in that crew resource management all the way to the guy on the ground, including wireless ICS is amazing. And it's technology that's out there that I recommend for anybody and everybody. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, and that's just, that's one of the beautiful things about technology is that it increases. I think that there's only going to be continued enhance, enhancements in overall safety, including things like that. I mean, go figure. It makes sense. Like, it would be so nice if that guy on the ground could hear what we're talking about, right? Like, it's it's like a such a such a novel idea, and it's awesome to hear that that, that technology actually exists. I, I actually was not aware of that. Oh, oh yeah, well, that, heck yeah. Let's, a lot. let's have a conversation about that. Oh my gosh, I love it. Go ahead, John. My bad. <laughs> I think about that a lot, like what you brought up when with when we're starting the aircraft. You know, for us, the TFO is standing outside holding fire watch and making sure that no one's walking into the tail of the aircraft as 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 we're starting. But I'm looking at him, and if he's you know motioning with his hands, I'm trying to interpret what he's talking about while at the same time trying to watch the gauges and make sure nothing's running away. You know. So the fact that you don't have to interpret sign language anymore and, and you can focus on the gauges while hear, hearing him communicate is, or her is, is really important. So yeah, I agree with you. Technology is stepping in there big time to make our mission more, more, more efficient and manageable on the ground. So yeah, I love that. So one of the things uh, specifically about uh, wireless ICS, I, I'm going to use the Axness system currently because that's what I'm currently using. So it's just easy, easy for me to relate to that at the moment. But so when I'm on the Axnet system, again, I, I have direct communications, ICS comms with the helicopter. It is brilliant, right? This is all in hoist operations and a lot more rescue uses that system than anyone else that I've seen. However, I'd be all about having just an EMS crew, especially when you're talking about landing at a scene call. They unplug from the helicopter, plug into an ICS port of, a, of an Axnet system or similar, and they're walking over to a patient and they're having a conversation with you on the way, not radio comms, ICS comms. They're like, hey, Halsey, this is going to take a little a minute. You can shut down. Or, hey, th this is going to be quick. Just stay turning. Or, hey, if you want to bring it to idle for a minute, give me five. I've got to do this, this, and this. And you're like, yeah, roger that. We, we're good to go. Or, hey, guys, we're, uh, we're going to start running low on fuel here pretty quick. Um, can I get an update real quick? Yeah, yeah, sorry. It's going to be five minutes. We were just getting the hand out. And now we're walking to the aircraft. So it's literally a communication. And you could be 50, 100 meters. Uh, I, I, actually, I think it's like almost a half a mile, depending on the range. But 
it's a it's a ways that you can hear them talk to the helicopter. So if it's a land, let's, I've seen this too with uh, scene calls where the helicopter will land like almost light on wheels or not light on skids on a guardrail and the medics jump out to the scene and then the helicopter backs off and flies around. You can be doing circles and still be on ICS. It's brilliant. So yeah, that's, I'm all about that's it. really cool. And there's been times, John, I don't know what your experience is with, with patrol law enforcement on the ground. And I don't know if you've ever been in an experience in a helicopter where you've landed on, on a highway or something. I don't know if that happens in, in law enforcement flying, but air medical flying, obviously part of the job sometimes is landing on highways and things like that. And I don't know what it was. Maybe it's just the, the, uh, in the state where I was those cops, but I think that maybe ground patrol units are used to being able to kind of do this and do that, you know, cause they have to park weird or they, they're not breaking rules, but they're doing things because they can. And it kind of dic- dictates the situation. And I found that when I was at a busy scene on a highway, I was always most concerned about the law enforcement agents. Uh, I had so many situations where cars were, you know, a DPS unit would drive like super close, almost within under my rotor disc. And it would be nice to be able to be on comms with my crew still, because when you're just sitting there running, all you can do is like do this weird wave thing. Like, Hey, don't do that. Stop. Yeah. Uh, so what we always try to do is we would, you know, we would, meet with with law enforcement we would meet with fire departments and we would try to brief them on what to expect on on scene safety and things like that but it does get a little bit hairy sometimes when you're just sitting in this helicopter and you're like why is this firefighter walking up to me from behind or what is this cop doing coming you know it's just always a little bit scary yeah absolutely yeah. i was lucky for my agency in our our region uh everybody in in my agency and in our region in general is very familiar with helicopter operations. But I, I think once you get out in the kind of the rural areas or, or for agencies that don't have helicopters, they're not familiar with, you know, what to avoid and what to be aware of. That's a big problem. You know, and you bring up the volunteer firefighters, they're doing a community, a huge service by being volunteers, taking time away from their families to, to do the things they do. But at the same time, they may not be familiar and aware of some of the hazards that exist. You know, they're, they're, they're calling LZs for you guys sometimes and they may not even know, what to look for when it comes in LZ. So, you know, we, Jeff and I talked about that at, at length in a couple podcasts. Uh, he would always, you know, be very, very critical and, and skeptical of the LZs they called out. He would, his recons were very thorough. And if it didn't like it, he would just, Hey, we'll, we'll go to one I'm familiar with. It's a half mile down the road. They can take that patient, transport him a half mile and he feels better, you know, safer for everybody. So yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, we always, and, and you're right you know, think, especially in, in the rural communities that I served, it was mostly all volunteer departments. And I think it's awesome. They're, they're helping their community. They're passionate, but it's not like their main job, right? Uh, for instance, I do, I'm a volunteer ski patroller. I work on the nice. Hill with paid patrollers. They, they do, you know, my, my required commitment for a year is they do that in three weeks, right? So like these guys have experience. They're they're better patrollers than I am because they have that experience. I try my best and my intentions are good, right? So with the volunteer firefighters, absolutely. There's so many situations where if we were lucky enough to even get them on the radio, that was always kind of half the battle. It, you, you never just take what they say as, oh, they say there's no wires. There must be no wires, right? Because half the time you'd be like, well, what about the wires that you're standing under, right? Um, oh, yeah, well, there's those ones. 
So, you know, I think it's important again as a crew and and briefing with the crew and understanding specifically landing off airport. Hey, what am I just flying around circles burning fuel? What is the purpose? What am I looking for? And as a pilot, I would always call out, "Hey, I see this trees down here. I see that there's this line that seems to run from, you know, left to right and then it kind of kitty corners off here." I'm talking about it because then they know I see it. And then if they don't hear me say something, my rule was like, if you didn't hear me say it, please, please, please say it. Mm -hmm. And maybe even if you heard me say it, you can reiterate, right? So knowing what to look for, specifically in an off-airport orbit at nighttime, is so vital for safety. Absolutely. Yeah. My last TFO I had, uh, his name was Corey. He was really good. And you talk about airport operations. Earlier, I brought up how I didn't know at first what upwind was and downwind was and crosswind. Well, Corey, he was dialed. He knew all the terminology. He knew he knew a lot about the, the pilot side of the house, even though he's not a pilot. So as we're coming in for approach, he'd be like, hey, you've, you've got the aircraft upwind. Like just something as simple as that or the aircraft on crosswind. He knew the terminology. Not only was he looking out, but he knew the terminology. So again, going back to, you know, including your folks in these operations in a way that makes them effective communicators, you know, teach them the terminology that, that helps you understand what they're saying and vice versa. So that's, I think that's, that's critical. hundred percent. I personally feel fellas that we've, that we've done a good job at kind of sharing our experience on, on CRM. Um, I'm curious if you guys are, are open to chatting about some other topics, some cool things that maybe you've been doing in your podcast and, and maybe I can share some cool stuff from my podcast as well uh, and kind of transition away from the CRM. Absolutely. I'd love yeah. to. Let me, let me throw one more. Do thing. we have, let me close, uh, let me close this out for CRM. And this was the same brief that I would give uh, at any point in time. The first one would be if I've never flown with somebody or anybody, don't assume that I know anything and question everything. That would be the first one. The second one is if you see, hear, smell, touch something that doesn't seem right or you question it, please let us know. Because if you don't and it is something wrong, then we're going to have a problem. If you do and there wasn't something wrong, I might laugh at you and be like, no, that's normal. It's all good. But at least that way there's that communication and be like, oh, no, no, no. That's normal. That's good. Or holy cow, no, that red stuff running down the window. Yeah, that's not good. Oh, all of a sudden we don't have any transmission <laughs> fluid. Shit. <laughs> so right. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But it's that's uh, yeah, I like that. Thanks. Good closing And point. actually one one other closing point that I have, and I'm and you kind of reminded me of it, is I was lucky enough one time to be a part of a flying in the wire environment um class. I think it was put on by PG and E, which is a large utility up here in the Northwest. One thing that really stuck with me is that in the wire strike accidents that they had where the linemen survived, I don't remember the percentage, but it was high percentage of time. The linemen said, I knew the wire was there. I thought the pilot saw it. Yeah. That was huge to me. And I think that that was a big takeaway for a lot of those linemen in that class. It was a pilot lineman combined class of don't assume that the guy up front sees anything. Pilots are nothing special, right? We're just humans. We're we're limited by what we can see, what we can hear. You know, we're we all have the same uh, blind spots. Every you know, uh, not to mention just other things going on in the cockpit that can distract us. So that was a really powerful message that I took away from that uh, that CRM training in the wire environment. Is 
that most of the time the guy in the back saw the wire, but he didn't say anything about the wire. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be afraid to say it. Cool. I like it. I like it. Thanks for that. On to what you're talking about, Halsey, with with uh, kind of transitioning to some different topics. One of the cool things about being part of Vertical Helicast is we get to have conversations with so many different people from the helicopter sector in general. You know, we all kind of have different areas of, of interest and areas that we cover. So I think it'd be really cool to come back every so often, maybe every couple months, and talk about some of the interesting conversations that have, that have popped up and some of the things that are, you know, high interest for the helicopter community in general. So for you, Halsey, you think back in the last couple months worth of conversations and, and podcasts that you've been a part of, what's something that was really interesting that you recall as being something that would be worthy of talking about? Yeah, so I'm thankful for all of my guests. I've had such an incredible year. <clears throat> In fact, we we just finished our wrap-up show for the year, uh, and it was really fun to kind of go down that memory lane of all the amazing conversations. I think one of the cool things about podcasting is like, man, you get to talk to all these people that are usually smarter than I am, and I just get to like have like this free education. So this year has been eye-opening on so many levels, and, and my guests are incredible. One that stands out, and I think it's kind of controversial, and I, I was curious of your guys' opinions. And obviously, Jason, from your perspective, it's a little bit different because I don't know if it can infiltrate uh, like it can in the cockpit. But uh, I had a gentleman on, uh, his name is Hector, and he's a part of a startup. He's actually the owner, uh, CEO of a startup called Rotor.ai. And essentially what they're doing is they are implementing essentially autonomous flying in helicopters. Right now they have two versions, and I believe it's in a, in a 22 airframe where the helicopter completely just can fly on its own. You can pre-program everything within a computer, and then it just goes. It does its thing. They've tested it. I've seen the videos. It's pretty incredible. And then they also have a version where a pilot can fly the aircraft from the ground. They can be, in fact, I think we talked about it on the podcast, they want to use it for ag. You know, They could have their pilots in, the, in New Hampshire, in their headquarters, flying aircraft in Iowa, flying ag so obviously we talked about technology we were talking about the wireless and, and how things can actually help safety and and obviously taking pilots out that's one life that's outside of a helicopter one would argue that that is now potentially safer but again from a pilot perspective i'm very torn on this type of trajectory for helicopter aviation and i'm kind of curious on what your guys's perspective and thoughts are and are we moving towards a world where maybe helicopter pilots are becoming more kind of like an airline pilot where we're just sitting there and, and watching things happen? No offense to airline pilots. Uh, but, I mean, that's the joy of helicopters to me is like putting putting this thing on like a pair of pants and flying it. So I'm just kind of curious of what you guys uh, think about all that. Yeah, I think the helicopter industry is so unique in that, I mean, helicopters are expensive to fly. So if you're flying a helicopter, you're doing a specific mission most of the time. Not many people have the privilege of joy flying helicopters. Um, I wish I had that privilege, you know, but they're expensive machines to operate. And because I think helicopters are mission oriented most of the time, uh, it requires someone to, to use their brain on that, in that aircraft to make that mission successful. You think about search and rescue, firefighting operations, law enforcement, there are certain aspects and elements within each of those mission sets that could be done autonomously, but I think most of them require in-flight, in-flight, an in-flight pilot, someone to, to, to change direction, change, change the course of action. 
And someone will say, well, what about drone operations? Drones are, in law enforcement in particular, drones are doing the law enforcement mission that most helicopter, uh, law enforcement helicopters are doing. And they're, they are doing some of that, and they do some of that really well. But, you know, as I talked about earlier, when a TFO is on a mission and they're using the camera, your field of view is super narrow. And you've got a pilot in the other seat who's looking in, at the bigger view. So you're using two different fields of view to, to search and look for something. And I don't, I haven't had that same level of success when I'm, when I'm just using the camera as is when you have a, a camera, a TFO using the camera and the pilot looking out the window. So I feel like, um, just the basic search for somebody becomes less efficient. I think if you're going to employ AI in, in, in this world where the, everything's mission oriented, it's got to make the mission more efficient. Where I do see it helping is with the components within the, the law enforcement mission set. So you take uh, sh shot over camera systems, for example, they're using AI uh, when you're like, if you've got a, a victim who's drowning or, or, or stranded in the ocean or the water, they can use AI to help identify that person because their, their body temperature is different than the, the body of water that they're in. So there's elements that are helpful within that. But I think AI by itself, autonomous flight, for the mission sets isn't very realistic to switch gears. I feel like when you come to commerce and there's uh, the ag example you brought up, if you could program the most efficient flight path and disperse that chemical for the, for the ag, in the most efficient way possible, that's something I could see being helpful, you know, or organ trans transportation in LA, for example, when the, you've got heavy overcast days where you can't fly, then you have these autonomous vehicles. Bell's got some pretty cool autonomous vehicles that can carry packages of certain weights. You can take them then from hospital A to hospital B when an aircraft couldn't do it, a pilot aircraft, because there's no visibility. You know, So I think there's certain applications, but in general, I don't see the widespread application and acceptance in, our, in the helicopter industry. I think the acceptance is the key term there. I think it's, I think we can accept certain portions of technology coming in and, and embracing it and, and knowing that it's helping with safety, but kind of eliminating this idea of needing a pilot. I don't foresee it happening at least in the near future, you know, five, 10 year, maybe, maybe as we get further down and technology just gets better and better. And these AIs can quote unquote, think like humans think then, you know, maybe, things do start to change. Uh, so it's, it's definitely interesting. It's an interesting time to be a, to be a helicopter pilot. Jason, obviously your mission is very, I feel like you're, uh, you're not replaceable in my opinion. I mean, is there anything that you can see <laughs> oh, with the AI funny. ever coming into your environment? <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, I hesitate with no, you, I mean, AI can be used in a whole bunch of aspects of search and rescue for sure. The the question would be, and, and I'll even go from search and rescue to law enforcement to military ops of me flying the aircraft. Like there's so many dynamics to communication, CRM from the front to the back, the back to the front with your holding position. You've got to alter something. You've got to move somewhere. I'm running a hoist hook while my buddy's on the hoist and he's going, he's giving me hand signals like, how do you, I'm sure it's possible, but I, I, we have people in the water. We have people on the ground. We have people on the side of the mountain. There's so many moving parts to that, that you have to be, everybody's got to be in sync. And so everybody's got to be looking at the same thing. 
I don't see how that would be possible sitting in New Hampshire and trying to do a SAR case out in California. It just, it doesn't equate. Um, and in addition to that, you can go as far as in certain guys with, now you've got fast rope or rappel or um, your aerial gunner stuff. Like AI could come in maybe with aerial gunner stuff, but as far as fast rope and guys, then you need troops on the ground. You need people there. There's a reason you need people on the ground. So how do you, you can't take that out. So I, I don't see Cyborgs. I, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sir, I'm here to get you. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think most of these missions are so I, dynamic. I, yeah, You've got to have a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of change in course in what we're doing. So it's not fly from point A to point B most of the time. It's, right. it's mm -hmm. you know, five different changes from when you, tick off to when you land and you know i just i i, f I find it difficult to, to see ai completely stepping in and filling the position for pilots and i will say in law enforcement general operations have been a, a huge uh, addition as a tool in the in the tool belt and i think they complement each other very well so i think ai will come in and, and be able to complement what we're doing very successfully yeah but i i don't see a complete replacement yeah, I I I, t I lean to agree with both of you on that, John. What about you? You've obviously had a fantastic year with your podcast. Any any standouts from twenty twenty three with you? Yeah, you know, like you said, all the all the guests that we had in twenty twenty three were amazing, and we tend to talk about people's stories a lot because I think everybody's got an interesting story. Anybody who's in aviation's overcome a lot of adversity to get to the positions they're in, whether you're a pilot or rescue man, whatever your your role is, a mechanic. So those stories, you know, I, it's really hard to pick out one in particular that is, is really noteworthy. Um, on just the industry stance, uh, industry conversation, we had a conversation with uh, two guys who were F-18 pilots and then became flight surgeons in the Navy. They started their own business. They're called Wingman Med. And I, I thought it was important because, you know, most of the folks in public safety aviation are in later parts of their career. And as you get to the later part of your career, uh, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to face a, a point where your medical's at risk for whatever the reason is high blood pressure, uh, whatever the thing is. So they've kind of created a, a, a way of helping pilots deal with that. Uh, we all trust our local AMEs to help us with our annual medicals, but let's be honest. A lot of times those local AMEs don't know a whole lot about aviation. So uh, just on the topic of medicals, you know, like, again, we're all going to deal with that. So I don't know what your thoughts are on, on the AMEs and, and the medical situation, but, you know, I think it's something that everybody faces. Yeah. I mean, my, <clears throat> I have pretty good blood pressure until I show up to, to that, uh, second <laughs> class medical appointment. I've always found it interesting. I think that there's, I think it, you can dive real deep when, when you talk about medical, I think from a baseline perspective, specifically for civilian flying, I almost sometimes kind of think it's a bit of a joke on just my, at least my experience of getting a medical. I mean, it's just such a basic checkup. I don't think that you can really actually determine anything really through that. Maybe you can see if the eyes are going bad or whatnot. I think where the industry is falling short, and I've talked about it on my podcast before, is like evaluating mental health. I think that obviously as pilots, you're not, you shouldn't really talk about any type of mental health, right? If there's been 
a passive depression or maybe some anxiety, whatever it may be. It's like, it's really a taboo thing. Uh, therefore, you can't really seek medical help and treatment for it. And I think that that could really lead to negative outcomes. And I think it has. I think, you know, you see high alcoholism within uh, aviation and, and pilots in general, uh, because maybe they're using alcohol to cope. I don't know. Uh, so my my stance on, on the medical is I'm curious, as time goes on, what the FAA is going to do to better address mental health. Because again, we're all humans, we all deal with things. Uh, but as pilots, it's almost like you're not allowed to deal with anything. So how do you how do you have that balance, right? So I'm definitely curious and and uh, love to hear hear your take or or talk to you, talk to those guests that you're talking about. I'm sure they have kind of a, a perspective on that. But it's just I've always found that interesting. Yeah, me too. Uh, the mental health conversation is a really important conversation in public safety. It's something that we've kind of s- swept under the rug for a long time, but I, I feel like it's getting better. Um, but like like you're you're mentioning, I think when it comes to either the psychological aspect or the medical aspect, people don't want to dig into, you don't want to go beyond that, that medical appointment with your AME because you don't want it to uncover something that might defer your, your medical. So I think a lot of people push these appointments off and don't want to go to a doctor and see what's actually happening because then it puts your, your livelihood at risk. So there's, there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of conversation points in there, but what I like that wingman med is doing their thing is if you're safe to fly, we'll help you stay flying. Of course, if you've got a, a medical complication that makes you unsafe to fly, the FA is not going to allow it, and they're not going to cover that up for you. But if you're safe to fly, if you've got high blood pressure, but it's being treated, there's ways around that. Like, the, you know, as we get older, again, we're all going to face certain issues. But I think the biggest thing is just changing the culture to where pilots aren't afraid to go get a regular physical and to dig into the actual medical things that are happening. And like you said, the, the mental health side of things as well. We just, nobody wants a deferral. Everyone's wanting to pay their bill. So I, you know, I think it's, it's a really important conversation. Uh, so that's kind of my two cents there. Yeah. I mean, you, you hear the stories of pilots doing weird things and sometimes even bad things. Right. And then it, it comes out, well, oh yeah, this person's been depressed and had suicidal thoughts for years. And it's like, well, of course he hasn't disclosed that because if he discloses that, then he's not going to get his medical. So I think it's, potentially maybe an unsolvable problem. I hate to say that. I'm just hoping that the FAA is working with the experts in the medical field to better address how pilots can seek uh, mental health as, as we are all human. And specifically like in, in air medical and law enforcement, you can see some things sometimes that maybe jar you a little yeah. bit. Um, and if you're just a, a normal civilian, like I am seeing, you know, some guy's leg missing, you know, it's, it could be like a bit of a traumatic thing to see. Right. So, uh, interesting to see where the medical thing goes. Yeah, we had a conversation with, uh, Jimmy Hatch not long ago. It was our hundredth episode. He was a Navy SEAL who was critically shot while on a mission searching for Bill Bergdahl, who is an army, army deserter. And he walks through his, his journey with PTSD. And, and it's a, it's a journey that I think just about everybody walks at some point in some, to some degree in, in public safety. So, when it comes to getting help, I think it's super important. Um, like you said, even in air support as a, as a law enforcement pilot and as a TFO, while you're not on the ground involved in these critical incidents, we're over every single critical, critical incident that, that takes place. And you know, that, that could take a toll on, on some folks, you know, over the years of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of critical incidents that you've observed and been over where you got officers down and you just see some, some interesting things, you know? So I think yeah. it's super important. And uh, I like that we're having this conversation just to, 
I guess normalize it. You know, I think that's important. Jason, I'm curious from your perspective. I feel like the job that you do, I feel like you're almost like have to be a professional athlete in in the sense of like (laughs) keeping your body healthy and fresh. Like if, if, if our listeners are out there that are maybe interested in doing what you do, um, this goes along the lines of medical. I, I suppose it's like, you know, I feel like your job has to be really physically taxing. So it's, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, one of the things that, yes, hundred percent. And one of my best friends, one of my mentors actually says exactly what you said is we're professional athletes. We just don't get paid the money for it. It's that's the bottom line. Um, <laughs> we are required to work out. We're required to, to lift people up. We're required to swim. We're required to run. You're required to be humping a pack of 50 pounds or 22 kg up a mountain because that's where the patient is and that's what all the gear is that you're carrying. So yes, what's interesting to me is I don't need the same medical check that you guys need up front. <laughs> it's only because I'm not at the controls of the aircraft. I'm like, oh, that's, that, no, that's cool. And I've seen some unfit people set up at the back of the helicopter and be like, what? who are you going to pull out of where? Like, seriously. <laughs> but for the most part, out of everybody that I've ever worked with, everybody's a, a physical fitness monster. Everybody's willing to do the drive, go to the gym on their own. Um, they want to work out. They want to stay healthy because they know it's coming. And as my buddy Bob would say, preparing for the bearing. You never know when the alarm's going to go off and you're going to be swimming in the bearing sea in 20-foot waves. Um, yeah, that was me too. Like, if you're not ready, man, Mother Nature is trying to kill you all the time. <laughs> the only thing we can do is be strong enough to be smarter than it. So be ready for when you have it. Um, the other side of that, I'll, I'll piggyback off your your uh, your mental health side of things. That is huge in our world. And I highly recommend anybody just make a phone call. Talk to a buddy. Talk to a friend. Talk to somebody that, that you can trust for a little while until you can get the help you need. I, you can call a stranger. You can call me. I call me. I will have a conversation <laughs> with you. You can tell me that, like, man, I I don't feel right about this. Okay. Okay. That's that's good. Keep going. It's like therapy to start talking to somebody. Call a friend. Mm-hmm. It's better than Yeah, hundred percent. So I yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. And you know, I I I've always thought about mental health and I've, I've done that before, Jason. I've, I've had times where I've been struggling. Maybe there's a loss in my family or there's just a, there's a, there's an outside stress that I just feel like I'm holding the weight of the world. And whether I'm, it's, whether it's a flying situation or just in my sales business, if I hold that in, it, I, I literally start to feel it. My neck hurts, my head hurts. It's, it's like becomes this physical stress and just being able to have a confidant in which you can share things with and just kind of unload some of that, unpack it a little bit. I always find that people, um, especially if you have the right group of friends and the right people around you, people are really wise. And people have also most likely felt the way that you felt. And so it's really nice. It's almost like sometimes you can feel like, oh, man, I'm just so alone in this journey, right, of owning my own business and being stressed about this and being stressed about that. But then I talk to my friends and it's like, oh, they feel this same stress. Maybe it's a little bit different of a situation. But just being able to have that conversation, I think, is a really natural and healthy way to help us as humans kind of decompress a little bit. 
Totally. My, my closing know, I'm thoughts. Throw one more thing out there. Wait, let me throw this one out there, John, real quick. Is for those that that get the phone call. So I'm going to say Halsey, John, you guys each call me individually. You're stressed out. The best thing that I can do to help you right now is shut my mouth and listen. Just talk. I don't want to interrupt. You don't want to hear my problems. You don't want to hear my story and how, oh, this happened to me. It's no big deal. No, no, no. Shut your mouth for five freaking minutes. Let them talk. <laughs> let it out. Just let allow whoever's talking to you to actually talk to you. All right. And that that's like, that's key because that's going to help them. And then you guys can, then you can work together, but give them a minute. hundred percent. Let them talk. I'm picturing like your doctor. You're like, zip it. Scott, zip it, Scott. Zip. <laughs> zip it, zip it, real good, Scott. You even got the bald head to go with, go with it. Hey, <laughs> hey now, hey now. Uh, it's funny. It's funny, Quinny, that yeah, I'm in, literally interrupting you as you're trying to talk about not not interrupting people, but <laughs> but I think that's a good point. And <laughs> my closing thoughts on on the mental health side, and I'll refer to my friend RJ Garwood. Uh, his thing is the five mother effers. You've got to have five mother effers in your life that you can call, tell them to be at intersection of A and B with a shovel at 5 AM and they'll be there uh, in a way that, you know, (laughs) other people won't. You've got to have people that you can trust that when you call the, you call them on the phone and say, this is what I'm going through. They'll be quiet and they're not going to tell everyone what, you know, what you're telling them in confidence. And not only do you have to have those five people, but you have to be one of those five for someone else. So make yourself available and, you know, when you see one of your five going through some, some stuff, call them out on it. Not in a bad way. Like, hey, bro, I, I realized something's up. What's going on? Because a lot of us aren't really open and wanting to talk about a lot of the struggles we have. But one of those five is going to be in a position where they can, in confidence, ask you what's up, you know, and, and you, should, you should have those. So I love the, the five mother efforts concept. Can I, uh, confine, can I confine something in you guys? Of course. And I'll, I... I have to get to a pre-buy pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd just like to confine that to you guys. You you can do what you want with that information, but I just want to let you guys know. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. (laughs) And I I have the button. I'm the one pressing the record and stop button. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, hey, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys taking the time to to talk and, and go through some of this stuff. There's... Like I said, a ton of conversations we're having, and and uh, I look forward to the next time we get to come on here and and uh, roundtable some of this stuff. I think it's incredible. I think um, sometimes people ask. I don't know about you guys if you guys get the same question, but sometimes people are like, "Oh, is there like, are you feeling competitive? That are you are you mad that there's other podcasts on this platform?" And it's like, absolutely not. Yeah. I think it's I think it's awesome because we all cover something a little bit different. But then I'm hoping in 2024 that we can do more things like this. Because you guys have such a wealth of knowledge in what you guys have done, in which I can just never speak about. It's just some things that don't come up on my podcast because it's just not what I've done, right? I've I've never even I haven't been within two thousand miles of the Bering Sea, right? Uh, let alone jumping into it. Uh, <laughs> love, you know, that's just it's it's Cra- it's freaking crazy. awesome, right? Yeah. You know, Most I've I've never been in law. Just- <laughs> <laughs> I've never been in in, in law enforcement, so. Uh, I think to our listeners out there, first and foremost, thank you to everyone because it's kind of made this Helicast platform possible. Uh, and just know that as a platform, we are hoping to all continue to come together, not just to do cool, fun podcasts like this, but to also 
push the envelope of getting better and, and push, pushing out better content and working together. So uh, I'm grateful for you guys. I'm so excited for the Hangar Z podcast and the Real Rescue. And I feel honored that the Helicopter podcast is part of that platform. So I'm just very excited for 2024 and uh, seeing where all this goes. Yes, sir. Awesome. Absolutely. Me feel too. the exact same way. Well, Cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers, guys. Appreciate it. Cheers. Right, peace. Go. Now it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode. Breeze Eastern. For over 80 years, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured battle-proven aerial rescue hoists, winches, and cargo hooks. Each product is carefully crafted to support demanding mission scenarios, ensuring the job gets done safely and efficiently. Visit them today at www.breeze-eastern.com. There you go, buddy. Look, it's like you. Rotor 860. Oh, yeah. Rotor 860. Look, you're learning. Good job. <laughs>